We're going to look at the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 14, and we'll read from verses 1 to 12. Uh, we're just going to read a portion of it, but uh, we're going to talk about the wider story of what's going on here. So Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. If you have your Bibles, you can look in your Bibles. And uh, if not, you can look up on the screen behind me. This is God's word. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would, we that, uh, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said uh, to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. This is God's word. Uh, Let's pray. God, we thank you just for this time, and uh, we pray that you would speak to us powerfully through your word and spirit. And uh, we pray that, um, I guess most of all, uh, we would have a great sense that you are near to us, and that you are faithful, and that you are good to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you have, uh, if you've ever tried to read the Bible from cover to cover, from front to back, I think the place that most people will give up is in the book of Leviticus, because in the book of Leviticus, it's like all, all these different kinds of laws, and uh, sometimes I think the book of Numbers gets lumped in with Leviticus, and people just kind of assume it's, it's more of the same. Because after all, if you start reading the book of Numbers, it begins with the census, and it's like a bunch of names and like a number of people. <laughs> and uh, that is arguably uh, less stimulating than reading the laws in Leviticus. Uh, but actually, if you can kind of get through that, Numbers is quite uh, a fascinating and interesting book. Also, the English title for this book is, I think, unfortunate, because when you call it the book of Numbers, it doesn't sound like the most stimulating book to read, Right? And it gives you the impression that the entire book is just like a census or recounting uh, the number of people in each tribe. But did you know that in the Hebrew, the title of this book is actually In the Wilderness? And I think that's a more appropriate title for this book because it's about Israel's journey in the wilderness. But more than Israel's journey in the wilderness, the book of Numbers is actually about uh, transitions. It's about the transition from the old generation to the new generation of Israelites in the wilderness. The way this book is structured, the first uh, 25 chapters is basically about this old generation, and it begins with a census. Then in chapter 26, you have another census, and that census signals this new generation. And the first 
25 chapters of Numbers is pretty bleak with this old generation because they lack faith. But then the second half of the book of Numbers is a little bit more hopeful with this new generation. And as we were thinking about like the church and thinking about Paul just kind of preaching on the church, uh, I originally thought you know, Numbers would be a, a great book to preach through, especially connecting with the theme of like being sojourners. And I thought to talk about Israel's wilderness experience and starting with preaching through the book of Numbers. But then what we ended up doing is I started in the book of Exodus because that's also important to know. That's the start of their wilderness journey. Uh, But today, now we're getting to the book of Numbers, and it continues Israel's journey through the wilderness. And what's happening here is they are actually on the brink of going into the promised land, and their faith continues to get tested in this wilderness. I thought this was a very appropriate section of the Bible to look at, uh, in particular in terms of the season that our church is in, because we are also in a season of transition. During the pandemic, I read a book called How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going, Leading in a Liminal Season, and I just recently kind of revisited that book. And if you're not familiar with the term liminality, liminality basically refers to space in between. So it's neither here nor there, but it's like that in-between space. So for example, you might say an airport is a liminal space because uh, it's, it's neither here nor there. It's not necessarily in one country or, in, or in the other. It's kind of like this in-between transition point. If you've ever been stranded at the airport, you know that's kind of unsettling because you know you're not exactly at your destination and uh, you don't necessarily know like when your flight will uh, be ready for you to get there. Uh, the book of this book is basically the book that I read about leading in liminal seasons. It's basically about uh, leading during seasons of transition where you don't exactly know what the future holds. And something uh, <clears throat> something that you knew was coming to an end, and something new that is beginning, but you're kind of like in that in-between space and you don't exactly know what that new thing is, uh, those kind of seasons can be challenging. It can be very disorienting. It can be very unsettling. And what the author does is writes about these seasons. Like we feel, this is what she says, we feel as though we are trudging through mud, moving away from something comfortable and known towards something that can't yet be known. And as difficult as seasons of liminality are, she also says that It is precisely in these seasons that oftentimes birth something that is exciting, innovative, and new. And she says God's greatest work oftentimes occurs in these liminal spaces. Congregations and uh, other organizations, for that matter, go through these kinds of seasons uh, all the time. And uh, she says there's very predictable behaviors that usually emerge out of these seasons. One of those predictable behaviors is this rise of anxiety. And that's a very typical reaction in seasons of transition when the future is unknown. And that's what we see here, actually, in Numbers 14. If you're not familiar with the overall story of the Israelites, uh, let me give you a little bit of context so we kind of know what's going on in our passage. Basically, the old generation of Israelites, they've been wandering in the wilderness for quite a long time. And now that they are on the brink of entering into the promised land, the, the land that God promised them, What they do is they send out spies into the land of Canaan, uh, which is, again, the land that God promised to them. After 40 days, the spies come back, and they give a report. And this report is a very discouraging report. And they say, whoa, the people in this land, they're very strong, and the cities are very fortified, meaning it's going to be very difficult to overtake this land. Now, I don't exactly know what they imagined, 
uh, how they imagined things going with respect to the land during their years of wandering in the wilderness. Maybe they thought, hey, God promised us this land, so we're just going to get there, and this land is going to be vacant, and we're just going to take it. I, I don't know what they thought. But obviously, when they encountered this discouraging report, when they saw that the land, the cities were well fortified, that the people there were strong, that the military there was strong, they were pretty disappointed. They're probably thinking, oh no, we wandered all this way following God's promise, and now it's not going to come to fruition because this city is hard to overcome. The odds are stacked against them. It would be like the two and three Jets beating the undefeated Eagles today. I got to keep the young ones uh, engaged, right? But God then promised the Jets victory today. However, he did promise the Israelites that he would give them this land. So Numbers 14 is a turning point in the story of the Israelites in that they failed to trust God. And therefore, what would eventually happen to this old generation, God would judge them and basically say, you know, for the 40 days that the land was spied out, uh, you're going to be stuck now in this wilderness for 40 days, and I will make sure that this generation never sees uh, the fulfillment of my promise and never enters into the promised land. And so Numbers 14 is actually kind of the turning point of this old generation. This is actually where uh, they, they, they fail, and uh, after this, and subsequently, God will issue judgment upon this old generation. Now, uh, because of this, I think it's actually important to think about fear, because that's a very prominent uh, theme in this passage. What we see in this passage is that fear is not really an issue of circumstance, uh, but fear is ultimately an issue of faith. And when we talk about fear, I always want to emphasize this, that uh, the reasons that we have to fear are probably very legitimate, because we live in a broken world, and things go wrong all the time. If you're on your phones a lot, if you're reading the news a lot, you're definitely seeing all kinds of things that are going wrong uh, in this world. Uh, The most recent, the things that are happening in the Middle East. And there are tons of things to be worried about. And I don't think the Bible would necessarily talk about fear and say, hey, look, there's there's no good reasons to be afraid. Uh, Life is going to go perfect, and things that you're afraid of happening will never happen. That's not exactly how the Bible would frame fear. But I do think the Bible would say, even in spite of all these circumstantial reasons to be afraid, there's an even better reason to actually not be afraid. Because if God is real, if God is in control, if God is good, if God is wise, if God fulfills his promises, then he ultimately gives us a better reason not to be afraid, not to allow fear to drive us. And that's why fear is framed in the context of faith. In our passage, it takes place after they receive the spies' report and uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, like, as a, as a people, as a community, it seems like they all kind of have, like, this collective emotional breakdown, which, again, I think is pretty understandable because they had just spent all this time wandering in the wilderness thinking that they are close to their finish line only to hear some very discouraging bad news. The passage says, they raised a loud cry and people wept that night. And even that emotional reaction is understandable. But then what happens after that? Weeping turns into anger, and they begin to grumble against Moses and Aaron and Joshua. And by the end of the passage, they are ready to stone them. And you think, how do, how do they get to that point where they now want to uh, stone their leaders? And you can kind of see the progression. What happens in their heart? Fear captured their hearts, and they were driven by it. And so in verse 9, Joshua he would say to the people twice, Do not fear the people in the land. Right? Do not fear them. 
Now, by the way, that book that I referred to earlier, uh, the author says there's three prominent voices that we usually hear in liminal seasons. Uh, we hear the voice of fear, right? We hear the voice of cynicism, and we hear the voice of judgment. And clearly here, we see at least two out of three of those voices in this passage. They are afraid, and now they want to cast a judgment on Moses and Joshua for leading them to this point. Fear is a, is a very powerful force, and I don't know if we always recognize uh, how active it is uh, in our lives, but fear has this way of activating or shaping our imaginations to see like the worst-case scenario so that when we imagine our futures uh, and uh, fear infects our imagination, uh, we, we fear the worst will happen. And then we start to live in that worst-case scenario, and it becomes our reality in the present in terms of how we respond or react, which means I think fear has this power to distort reality by infecting our imaginations. Notice how this congregation says in verse 2, they say, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And you kind of think to yourself, like, really? Are you kidding me? You think life in Egypt was better? Like, in what scenario would it have been better to be in Egypt? But you see what fear does. It tells them the better scenario was the one that was familiar to them. The better scenario is uh, the one that they were saved from. The better scenario is being slaves in Egypt. And here they are suggesting that that is actually the better scenario in their present moment, but the reality is it's not. And fear has gripped their imagination and has overtaken their heart. And what comes out of that now emerges this reality of this voice of judgment. And within their distorted reality where Egypt was the better life scenario, they need somebody to blame and say, who took us out of uh, Egypt? Who's, who's, who's to blame for this? And they want to judge the very person that brought them out of Egypt, ready to stone Moses and Aaron. But here, at this point, this is when the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And this is what the Lord says to Moses. How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? And what's interesting here is that even though their anger is directed at Moses, the Lord, he interprets their action as an indictment against him, meaning him, the Lord. Why? Because in their judgment against Moses, that is ultimately an expression of their doubt in the promises of God. They are basically saying, what God said he would do for us, God will not do. Fear overtook faith, and therefore sin overtook righteousness and faithfulness. And God didn't tell them to take control of their lives or take control of their future. All God is saying is, trust me. Trust me. I recently got into golf uh, this past year, and I find with golf, there's a lot of spiritual lessons. And I I know many of you probably don't play golf, so uh, you may not connect to this illustration, but here's what I've learned playing golf. Golf can be this very frustrating sport because it's actually one of those sports where the harder you try and the more you try to control like your swing, the worse you actually become. Uh, That's my issue right now. So I I stink. I can't hit the ball very well. And uh, the reason I can't hit the ball very well, and you know, I I take uh, golf lessons with a friend and he tells me the same thing. 
Uh, he's like, you got to relax. He's like, stop trying to hit the ball. Uh, he's like, just trust your swing. Uh, the reason you're missing is because like, you're, you're trying to like, control your swing and your arms stiffen up and your body stiffens up and then you just miss the ball. I'm like, I'm trying, right? I'm trying. I'm trying to just let go and relax. And then when I'm finally able to do that, I was like, okay, it's like you do mental gymnastics. There's no ball there, right? There's no ball there. Just trust the swing, trust the swing. And then boom, you hit the swing, right? That's, that's the nature of golf. That's also the nature of faith, if you think about it, right? Uh, when you go to a, a golf course, fear is a very active thing. And playing, a, like going to a driving range is very different from playing on a course because of that fear component. So you're teeing off and people are watching you. Sometimes strangers are watching you. And like you're so afraid of missing the ball and like just kind of hitting it like 10 yards ahead of you that you try even harder and you know what happens? You hit it like 10 yards ahead of you. And it's like the most embarrassing thing. Um, then like people are behind you and like you feel rushed and you're trying to hit the ball. It's like, oh no, I got to hit this ball really well because people are behind me and they're going to get mad if we're like too slow. So then you do that and then you try harder and guess what happens? You hit a terrible shot. Uh, I remember like one time uh, I was playing golf with a friend and his fiance and we were going pretty slow and like this you know these people behind us were like uh, you know they were Korean so they had like this Korean accent they were like come on let's go right and I was like oh man right and that kind of makes you play worse because of the fear component that's what fear actually does to us I think in, in real life too when when there's like fear components things that we're afraid of our, our natural reaction is probably to take even more control. That's why we, be, we become control freaks. It's, it's actually a way to control the things that we're afraid of happening. But here's the thing. Uh, what we see in this passage, um, it's not that there are no reasons to be afraid. There are real threats. There are situations that can be a threat to us. There are a lot of reasons to be insecure. The future is uncertain, but our instinctual response to our fear, to hold tighter, to try to control things better. The problem with that is uh, we don't allow our lives to flourish because we are not living in, I guess, the control or the promises of God's hand. Problem is, the more we try to control, uh, we realize not everything in our lives can be controlled. A lot of things in our lives are outside of our control. And when we come to that realization, we could either have like a panic attack of like, oh, I can't control like X, Y, and Z. Or we just simply trust God and know, hey, I'm not in control, but there is a God who is in control. There is a God who is good. There is a God who is powerful. There is a God who is wise, faithful, and loving. And I can trust in him. Now, here's a reality. I know that can sound kind of trite to some people, but let me tell you why it's not trite. In this story, Moses again has to intercede on behalf of the people like he's done several times throughout the wilderness journey. But this time, what God does is he has to cast judgment upon what he calls this wicked congregation. He says, this generation will not enter the promised land. And when the people heard this, they mourned. And then they said, okay, like, all right, God, we'll, we'll listen to you now, right? But it was too late. And Moses would say to them, hey, it's too late. Don't even try to go to the promised land uh, because the Lord is not among you, but they don't listen and they try to go into the promised land and ultimately they're defeated by the Amalekites and the Canaanites in battle. So what does this mean? It, it means, 
at least one thing. It means Moses actually wasn't a good enough intercessor, as good as he was. His intercession was not enough to save them. But you know how we are different than the Israelites is this. This side of the cross, we have a perfect intercessor in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, prior to the start of Jesus' ministry, what, one thing you realize is this. The Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness. It's kind of a recapitulation of Israel's wilderness journey. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, the devil comes to tempt him. Remember we said the wilderness is a time of uh, temptation or testing. The devil comes to tempt him, just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness. And whereas Israel failed, Jesus would resist temptation and he would perfectly obey. The devil would say, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And what Jesus would say is, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil would take Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and say, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And Jesus responds, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And then finally, the devil takes Jesus and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and, and, and their glory. And he says, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus responds with scripture again. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And I think what that story is showing us is Jesus experienced the fullness of the dangers of the wilderness experience in a theological way and faced every temptation that Israel faced. And therefore, he knows firsthand the difficulty of these temptations. In fact, he probably knows better than us because, uh, in terms of the difficulty of these temptations, because he was unlike us and because he actually never gave in to those temptations. And so therefore, in the book of Hebrews, which frequently refers to this story, says, uh, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, Jesus would not only experience our temptations, but he would also experience the flip side of it. He would experience the fruition of all of our fears as he hung upon the cross. You get to the core of uh, things that we're afraid of. Uh, we're probably afraid of our own mortality, right? Expressed in many different ways, but we're afraid of death. Jesus experienced death. Well, we are all afraid of uh, shame. Jesus experienced shame as he hung on the cross. We fear rejection. We hate being rejected. Jesus experienced rejection, not just from strangers, but even from his own father. Jesus would experience it all, probably the fruition of everything that we could possibly fear. Jesus would experience it all as he hung upon the cross. And therefore, he would not only be better than Israel in that he resisted temptation in the wilderness, but he would also be better than Moses in that he was the only one who could perfectly intercede on our behalf and bring us into our promised land, this new creation. If this is true, so I said before, right, just trust God, and sometimes that can sound trite. It, it does sound trite without the gospel, but if this is true, if what Jesus did for us is actually true, then it's not trite anymore. What reason then do we have to be afraid? We have someone who has shown us the depth of his love for us. We have one who has shown us the length he is willing to go to fulfill his promises to us. We have one who has shown us that he will never leave us, never forsake us, even in response to our sin. 
He will be with us forever. Do you know that the future, whether known or unknown, that future that you're afraid of becoming a reality, do you know what that looks like? In that future, I will tell you this, God is still with you. And we have to imagine that God will still be with us there. Because what I find is when we imagine our futures and like our worst nightmares coming true, oftentimes in our imaginations, we don't imagine the future that God is with us even in that future. Uh, I've shared this story before. A um, long time ago, uh, when we were you know, going to Turkey for um, like our, the summer mission trip, uh, Pastor John actually told me this, so I didn't even think about it, but he was like, um, yeah, you might want to write down all of like your financial account information and like give it to your wife, right, just in case. So I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's wise. So um, I put all our financial information and all the logins and passwords, I gave it to my, my wife, and I said, here, like just in case something happens. And, uh, you know, she, she was like, what? <laughs> Why are you giving me this? And I think one of her greatest fears is that I will die. And um, uh, not that I thought something would actually happen, but I guess you just never know, right? So I think that spooked her a bit. And in response, you know, I couldn't really promise or guarantee that nothing would happen to me. Like, I don't know what the future is. But I guess all I said was this. I don't actually know if it made her feel better. It should have made her feel better. But this is what I said. I said, look, I can't, I can't guarantee nothing will happen. Uh, but I can say this. If, if your worst nightmare does come true, there is a greater reality that you should also couple with your worst nightmare, which is this, that God will still be with you and his promises will still be true. And I, I, I think um, the reality of that doesn't always hit us and affect us and transform our fears in the way that it ought to, but the resource, if we can, uh, if the spirit imprints that upon our hearts, I think it can transform all of our life's anxiety. And we have many. (laughs) We have many friends. The thing we don't realize is how these anxieties grip us, control us, keep us awake at night, stress us out, influence and impact our relationships. Um, I see it in myself when I have all this, like, stress, and I pass on the secondary stress to my kids, and uh, it's, it's a reality. Nobody can say... Well, what you're afraid of won't happen because we just don't know. There's a lot of good reasons to be afraid. But here's what I do know. God gives us a better reason not to be afraid. He is with us. He loves us. He is wise. He is in control. He is gracious. He is merciful. He longs for us to flourish. And he's given us the means by which we can flourish because of Jesus Christ. I think there is no greater fear than um, the fear of mortality, the fear of death. And yet, even in that, the resurrection promises that all things that go wrong, God can make right. And if that is true, if this gospel message is true, he gives us truly a better reason to not live in fear and not be afraid. Next week... Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to preach on next week. I'm consider- something in numbers, but uh, I'm considering looking at a strange story involving Balaam, uh, just in case I don't preach it next week. The basic point of that story, God has the power to turn 
curses into blessing. And that's one of the great things about, one of the great demonstrations of God's power. And if that's true, then what do we have to fear? Uh, the solution to our fear is not to, to hold tighter and to try to gain control of that which we cannot control. It's not to even do some kind of like mental gymnastics and pretend uh, everything will be fine and everything will be okay. At the end of the day, the only solution to fear is to look to God, to look to his promises, look at his character, receive and experience his love, know his presence, and rest in his unfailing arms. The thing about that is it does require faith. But God gives us faith as a gift. Let's pray together. You know, um, maybe before we respond in, in song, um, I think we have a lot of fears. Um, maybe they don't immediately come to mind. But I always find it's helpful to name these fears and bring it to God. We have a fear of an uncertain future. We have a fear of um, the safety of our family, the safety of our kids, how they're going to turn out. We have a fear about the future of this church. We have a fear of where we're going to live next. We have a fear of stability in our careers. We have a fear of um, you know, our parents' health. We have a fear of all kinds of things, Right? That's the reality of living in this kind of world. Name those fears, bring it before God, and ask God to remind you of the better reason he gives to not be afraid. To give you the gift to be able to see him, to know him, and to trust in him in light of these uncertainties.